Section 29 of The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, Volume 1A. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sean Stipsky. In the summer of 1858, Mr. Davis, being in Portland, Maine, a vast concourse of its citizens assembled in front of his hotel to offer him a welcome to their city, whereupon he made to them an address from which the following extracts are given. Fellow citizens, accept my sincere thanks for this manifestation of your kindness. Vanity does not lead me so far to misconceive your purpose as to appropriate the demonstration to myself, but it is not the less gratifying to me to be made the medium through which Maine tenders an expression of regard to her sister, Mississippi. It is, moreover, with feelings of profound gratification that I witness this indication of that national sentiment and fraternity which made us, and which alone can keep us, one people. At a period but as yesterday, when compared with the life of nations, these states were separate, and in some respects opposing colonies. Their only relation to each other was that of common allegiance to the government of Great Britain so separate indeed almost hostile was their attitude that when general stark of bennington memory was captured by savages on the headwaters of the kennebec he was subsequently taken by them to albany where they went to sell furs and again led away a captive without interference on the part of the inhabitants of that neighboring colony to demand or obtain his release united as we now are were a citizen of the united states as an act of hostility to our country imprisoned or slain in any quarter of the world whether on land or sea the people of each and every state of the union with one heart and with one voice would demand redress and woe be to him against whom a brother's blood cried to as from the ground such is the fruit of the wisdom and the justice with which our fathers bound contending colonies into confederation and blended different habits and rival interests into an harmonious whole so that shoulder to shoulder they entered on the trial of the revolution and step with step trod its thorny paths until they reached the height of national independence and founded the constitutional representative liberty which is our birthright by such men thus trained and ennobled our constitution was framed it stands a monument of principle of forecast and above all of that liberality which made each willing to sacrifice local interest individual prejudice or temporary good to the general welfare and the perpetuity of the republican institutions which they had passed through fire and blood to secure the grants were as broad as were necessary for the functions of the general agent and the mutual concessions were twice blessed blessing him who gave and him who received whatever was necessary for domestic government requisite in the social organization of each community was retained by the states and the people thereof and these it was made the duty of all to defend and maintain such in very general terms is the rich political legacy our fathers bequeathed to us shall we preserve and transmit it to posterity yes yes the heart responds and the judgment answers the task is easily performed it but requires that each should attend to that which most concerns him and on which alone he has the rightful power to decide and to act that each should adhere to the terms of a written compact and that all should cooperate for that which interest duty and honor demand for the general affairs of our country both foreign and domestic 
we have a national executive and a national legislature. Representatives and senators are chosen by districts and by states, but their acts affect the whole country, and their obligations are to the whole people. He, who holding either seat, would confine his investigations to the mere interests of his immediate constituents, would be derelict to his plain duty, and he who would legislate in hostility to any section would be morally unfit for the station, and surely an unsafe depositary, if not a treacherous guardian, of the inheritance with which we are blessed. No one more than myself recognizes the binding force of the allegiance which the citizen owes to the state of his citizenship, but that state being a party to our compact, a member of the Union, fealty to the Federal Constitution, is not in opposition to, but flows from, the allegiance due to one of the United States. Washington was not less a Virginian when he commanded at Boston, nor did Gates or Green weaken the bonds which bound them to their several states by their campaigns in the South. In proportion as a citizen loves his own state, will he strive to honor her by preserving her name and her fame, free from the tarnish of having failed to observe her obligations and to fulfill her duties to her sister states. Each page of our history is illustrated by the names and deeds of those who have well understood and discharged the obligation. Have we so degenerated that we can no longer emulate their virtues? Have the purposes for which our union was formed lost their value? Has patriotism ceased to be a virtue, and is narrow sectionalism no longer to be counted a crime? Shall the North not rejoice that the progress of agriculture in the South has given to her great staple the controlling influence of the commerce of the world, and put manufacturing nations under bond to keep the peace with the United States? Shall the South not exult in the fact that the industry and persevering intelligence of the North have placed her mechanical skill in the front ranks of the civilized world, that our mother country, whose haughty minister some eighty-odd years ago, declared that not a hobnail should be made in the colonies which are now the United States, was brought some four years ago to recognize our preeminence by sending a commission to examine our workshops and our machinery to perfect their own manufacture of the arms requisite for their defense? Do not our whole people, interior and seaboard, north, south, east, and west, alike feel proud of the hardihood, the enterprise, the skill, and the courage of the Yankee sailor who has borne our flag far as the ocean bears its foam, and caused the name and character of the United States to be known and respected wherever there is wealth enough to woo commerce and intelligence to honor merit? So long as we preserve and appreciate the achievements of Jefferson and Adams, of Franklin and Madison, of Hamilton and Hancock, and of Rutledge, men who labored for the whole country, and live for mankind, we cannot sink to the petty strife which would sap the foundations, and destroy the political fabric our fathers erected and bequeathed as an inheritance to our posterity forever. Since the formation of the Constitution, a vast extension of the territory and the varied relations arising therefrom, have presented problems which could not have been foreseen. It is just cause for admiration, even wonder, that the provisions of the fundamental law should have been so fully adequate to all the wants of a government, new in its organization, and new in many of the principles on which it was founded. Whatever fears may have once existed as to the consequences of territorial expansion must give way before the evidence which the past affords.
the general government strictly confined to its delegated functions, and the state left in the undisturbed exercise of all else, we have a theory and practice which fit our government for immeasurable domain, and might, under a millennium of nations, embrace mankind. From the slope of the Atlantic our population, with ceaseless tide, has poured into the wide and fertile valley of the Mississippi, with eddying whirl has passed to the coast of the Pacific, from the west and the east the tides are rushing toward each other, and the mind is carried to the day when all the cultivable land will be inhabited, and the American people will sigh for more wilderness to conquer. But there is here a physico-political problem presented for our solution. Were it purely physical, your past triumphs would leave but little doubt of your capacity to solve it. A community which, when less than twenty thousand, conceived the grand project of crossing the White Mountains, and, unaided, save by the stimulus which jeers and prophecies of failure gave, successfully executed the Herculean work, might well be impatient if it were suggested that a physical problem was before us too difficult for mastery. The history of man teaches that high mountains and wide deserts have resisted the permanent extension of empire, and have formed the immutable boundaries of states. From time to time, under some able leader, have the hordes of the upper plains of Asia swept over the adjacent country, and rolled their conquering columns over southern Europe. Yet, after the lapse of a few generations, the physical law to which I have referred has asserted its supremacy, and the boundaries of those states differ little now from those which were obtained three thousand years ago. Rome flew her conquering eagles over the then-known world and has now subsided into the little territory on which the great city was originally built. The Alps and the Pyrenees have been unable to restrain imperial France, but her expansion was a feverish action. Her advance and her retreat were tracked with blood, and those mountain ridges are the re-established limits of her empire. Shall the Rocky Mountains prove a dividing barrier to us? Were ours a central consolidated government instead of a union of sovereign states, our fate might be learned from the history of other nations. Thanks to the wisdom and independent spirit of our forefathers, this is not the case. Each state having sole charge of its local interests and domestic affairs, the problem which to others has been insoluble to us is made easy. Rapid, safe, and easy communication between the Atlantic and the Pacific will give co-intelligence, unity of interest, and cooperation among all parts of our continent-wide republic. The network of railroads which bind the north and the south, the slope of the Atlantic and the valley of the Mississippi, together, testifies that our people have the power to perform in that regard whatever it is their will to achieve. We require a railroad to the states of the Pacific for present uses. The time, no doubt, will come when we shall have need of two or three. It may be more. Because of the desert character of the interior country, the work will be difficult and expensive. It will require the efforts of a united people. The bickerings of little politicians, the jealousies of sections, must give way to dignity of purpose and zeal for the common good. If the object be obstructed by contention and division as to whether the route be northern, southern, or central, the handwriting is on the wall, and it requires little skill to see that failure is the interpretation of the inscription. You are the practical people, and may ask, how is that contest to be avoided? by taking the question out of the hands of politicians altogether. Let the government give such aid as it is proper for it to render to the company which shall propose the most feasible plan, 
then leave to capitalists with judgments sharpened by interest the selection of the route and the difficulties will diminish as did those which you overcame when you connected your harbor with the canadian provinces it would be to trespass on your kindness and to violate the proprieties of the occasion were i to detain the vast concourse which stands before me by entering on the discussion of controverted topics or by further indulging in the expression of such reflections as circumstances suggest i came to your city in quest of health and repose from the moment i entered it you have showered upon me kindness and hospitality though my experience has taught me to anticipate good rather than evil from my fellow-man it had not prepared me to expect such unremitting attentions as have here been bestowed i have been jocularly asked in relation to my coming here whether i had secured a guarantee for my safety and lo i have found it i stand in the midst of thousands of my fellow-citizens but my friends i came neither distrusting nor apprehensive in the autumn of eighteen fifty eight mr davis visited boston and was invited to address a public meeting at finial hall he was introduced by the honorable caleb cushing with whom he had been four years associated in the cabinet of president pierce mr cushing's speech on account of its great merit is inserted here except some complimentary portions of it mr president fellow citizens i present myself before you at the instance of your chairman not so much in order to occupy your time with observations of my own as to prepare you for that higher gratification which you are to receive from the remarks of the eminent man here present to address you in the course of the evening i will briefly and only suggest to you such reflections as are appropriate to that duty we are assembled here my friends at the call of the democratic ward and county committee of suffolk for the purpose of ratifying the nominations made at the late democratic state convention the nomination of our distinguished and honored fellow-citizen, Honorable Erasmus D. Beach, who has already addressed to you the words of wisdom and of patriotism, as also the nomination of others of our fellow-citizens, whom, if we may, we ought, whom the welfare and the honor of our commonwealth demand of us, to place in power in the stead of the existing authorities of the commonwealth. I would to God it were in our power to say with confidence that shall be done. It can be done we do say that it shall not depend upon us that it shall not be done we do say that in so far as depends upon us it shall be done and whatsoever devoted love of our country and our commonwealth whatsoever of our noble and holy principles whatsoever desire to vindicate our commonwealth from the stain that has so long rested upon the name may prompt us to do that we will do leaving the result to the good providence of god I say we are invited here by the ward and county committee to ratify these nominations, and we do ratify them with our whole heart, and we pledge our most earnest efforts at the polls to give success to these nominations. That call is comprehensive. It is addressed not only to Democrats, but to all national men, and so it should be. We know full well that there are multitudes of men in this commonwealth who oppose the Democratic Party, but who are yet impelled toward us by sympathy for the principles we profess, and by the repulsion they have toward the opinions and purposes of the leaders of the Republican Party. They sympathize with our principles, and we invite them to cooperate with us in the maintenance of the principles of the Constitution and in the vindication of the commonwealth all national men whatsoever may have been their past party affinities 
but while we do so we declare that it is our belief that the democratic party is now recognized as that only existing national party in the united states the only constitutional party the only party which by its present principles is competent to govern these united states whose principles are based upon the constitution the only party with a platform coextensive with this great union this is the great democratic party i have heard again and again remonstrances have been addressed to me more than once because of the condemnation which democratic speakers so continually utter about the unnationality as well as the unconstitutionality of the republican party let us reflect a moment let us recall to mind that the honor of the existing organization of this federal administration was by the votes of the people of these united states sustained when james buchanan was nominated for the presidency and that he is a worthy representative of the democratic party let us reflect also that john c fremont was nominated as the candidate of the republican party i pray you gentlemen to reflect upon the different methods by which these nominations were presented to the people of the united states on the one hand there assembled at the democratic convention at cincinnati the delegates of every one of the states in the union that convention was national in its constitution national in its character national in its purpose and cordially presented to the suffrages of the people of the united states a national candidate a candidate of the whole united states and that candidate was elected not by the votes of one section of the union alone or another section of the union alone but by the concurrent votes of the south and the north how was it on the other side on the other side there assembled a convention which by the very tenor of its call was confined to sixteen of the thirty-one states of the union which by the very tenor of its call excluded from its councils fifteen of the thirty-one states of the union a convention in which appeared the representatives of only sixteen of the states of the union nay i mistake as to the remaining fifteen states of the union in their name pretendedly in their name and their behalf there appeared one man one man only and he a self-appointed delegate by pretension from the state of maryland that was the convention which presented john c fremont to the people of the united states i say that was a sectional convention a sectional nomination a sectional party and no reasoning no remonstrances no protestations can discharge the republican party from the ineffaceable stigma of that sectional convention that sectional nomination and that sectional candidate for the suffrages of the united states that party itself has placed upon its back that shirt of nessus which clings to it and stings it to death i repeat then and i say it in confidence and vindication in so far as regards my own belief i say it in all good spirit toward multitudes of men in this commonwealth of the whig and american parties in their heretofore organization i say it to multitudes of men who have been betrayed by the passions of the hour into joining the sectional combinations of the republican party i say that in a democratic party and in that alone is the tower of strength for the liberties the position and the honor of the united states but why need i indulge in these reflections in proof of my proposition gentlemen we have here this evening the living proof the visible tangible audible incontestable immortal proof that the position of the democratic party in the existing organization of parties is the national constitutional party of the united states 
Gentlemen, I ask you to challenge your memories and look upon the history of the past four years of the United States, and can you point me to a Republican assembly here in the city of Boston or anywhere else? Can you point me in the last four years of our history to any occasion on which Faneuil Hall has been crowded to its utmost capability with a Republican assembly, in which appeared any one of those preeminent statesmen of the southern states to honor not merely their states, but these united states? When, sir, did that ever happen? When, sir, was that a possible fact, morally speaking, that any eminent southern statesman appeared in a Republican assembly in any one of the states of this Union? There never was a Republican assembly, an assembly of the Republican Party in 15 of these states. And I again ask, when, in the remaining 16 states, was there ever convened an assembly of the Republican Party which, by reason of bigotry, prescriptive bigotry, of unnational hatred of the South, and of determined insult of all southern statesmen did not render it an impossible fact that any southern statesman should thus make his appearance as a member in such republican convention you know it is so gentlemen and yet have we not a common country did those thirteen colonies which commencing with that combat at concord and following it with that battle at bunker's hill and pursuing it in every battlefield of this continent did those thirteen colonies form one country, or thirteen countries? Nay, did they form two countries, or one country? I would imagine, when I listen to a Republican speech here in the state of Massachusetts, when I read a Republican address in Massachusetts, I would imagine fifteen states of this Union, our fellow citizens, or fellow sufferers, our fellow heroes of the Revolution, I would imagine not that they are our countrymen endeared to us by ties of consanguinity, but that they are from some foreign country, that they belong to some French or British or Mexican enemies. There never was a day in which the forces of war were marshaled against the most flagrant abuses toward these United States. There never was a war in which these United States have been engaged, never even in the death struggle of the Revolution, never in our war for maritime independence, never in our war with France and Mexico, never was there a time when any party in these united states expressed avowed proclaimed ostentatiously proclaimed more intense hostility to the british french mexican enemy than i have heard uttered or proclaimed concerning our fellow citizens brothers in the fifteen states of this union it is the glory of the democratic party that we can assume the burden of our nationality for the union that we can make all due sectionalism in order to show our reprobation of sectionalism, that we of the North can sacrifice to the South, from dear attachment to our fellow citizens of the South, and they in the South in like manner meet with us upon that ground, in order to show their love for the Federal Union, and at the risk of encountering local prejudices. In the Democratic Party alone, as parties are now organized, is this Catholic, generous, universal spirit to be found. I say, then, the Democratic Party has such a character of constitutionality and of nationality. And now, gentlemen, I have allowed myself unthinkingly to be carried beyond my original purpose. I return to it to remind you that here among us is a citizen of one of the southern states, eloquent among the most eloquent in debate wise among the wisest in council, and brave among the bravest in the battlefield, a citizen of the southern state who knows that he can associate with you the representatives of the democracy and the nationality of Massachusetts, 
that he can associate with you on equal footing with the fellow citizens and common members of these United States. My friends, there are those here present, and in fact there is no one here present of whom it cannot be said that, in memory and admiration at least, and if not in the actual fact, yet in proud and bounding memory, they have been able to tread the glorious tracks of the victorious achievements of Jefferson Davis on the fields of Monterey and Buena Vista, and all have heard or have read the accents of eloquence addressed by him to the Senate of the United States. And there is one at least who, from his own personal observation, can bear witness to the fact of the surpassing wisdom of Jefferson Davis in the administration of the government of the United States. Such a man, fellow citizens, you are this evening to hear, and to hear as a beautiful illustration of the working of our Republican institutions of these United States, of the Republican institutions which in our own country, our own republic, as in the old republics of Athens and of Rome, exhibit the same combinations of the highest military and civic qualities in the same person. It must naturally be so, for in a republic every citizen is a soldier, and every soldier a citizen. Not in these United States, on the occurrence of foreign war, is that spectacle exhibited, which we have so recently seen in our mother country, of the administration of the country going abroad, begging, and stealing soldiers throughout Europe and America. No, and while I ask you, my friends, to ponder this fact in relation to that disastrous struggle of giants, which so recently occurred in our day, the Crimean War, I ask you whether any English gentleman, any member of the British House of Commons, any member of the British House of Peers, abandoned the ease of home, abandoned his easy hours at home, and went into the country among his friends, tenants, and fellow countrymen, volunteering there to raise troops for the service of England in that hour of her peril. Did any such fact occur? No. But here in the United States we had examples and illustrious ones, of the fact that men eminent in their place in Congress abandon their stations and their honors to go among fellow citizens of their own states, and there raise troops with which to vindicate the honor and the flag of their country. Of such men was Jefferson Davis. There is now living one military man of prominent distinction in the public eye of England and the United States. I mean Sir Colin Campbell, now Lord Clyde of Clydesdale. He deserves the distinction he enjoys, for he has redeemed the British flag on the ensanguined burning plains of India. He has restored the glory of the British name in Asia. I honor him. Scotland, England, Wales, and Ireland are open, for their counties as well as their countries, and their poets, orators, and statesmen, and their generals belong to our history as well as theirs. I will never disavow Henry V on the plains of Agincourt, never Oliver Cromwell on the fields of Marston Moor and Naseby, never Sarsfield on the banks of the Boyne. The glories and honors of Sir Colin Campbell are the glories of the British race, and the races of Great Britain and Ireland from whom we are descended. But what gained Sir Colin Campbell the opportunity to achieve those glorious results in India? Remember that, and let us see what it was. On one of those bloody battles fought by the British before the fortress of Shabastopol, in the midst of the perils, the most perilous of all the battlefields England ever encountered in Europe, in one of the bloody charges of the Russian cavalry, there was an officer, 
a man who felt and who possessed sufficient confidence in the troops he commanded and in the authority of his own voice and example received that charge not in the ordinary commonplace and accustomed manner by forming his troops into a hollow square and thus arresting the charge but by forming into two diverging lines and thus receiving upon the rifles of his highlandmen the charge of the russian cavalry and repelling it how all england rang with the glory of that achievement how the general voice of england placed upon the brows of sir colin campbell the laurels of the future mastership of victory for the arms of england and well they might do so but who originated that movement who set the example of that gallant operation who but colonel jefferson davis of the first mississippi regiment on the field of buena vista he was justly entitled to the applause of the restorer of victory to the arms of the union gentlemen in our country in this day such a man such a master of the art of war so daring in the field such a man may not only aspire to the highest places in the executive government of the union but such a man may acquire what nowhere else since the days of simon and miltiades of the cincinnati and the cornelia of athens and of rome has been done by the human race the combination of eminent powers of intellectual cultivation and of eloquence with the practical qualities of a statesman and general but gentlemen i am again betrayed beyond my purpose sir addressing general davis we welcome you to the commonwealth of massachusetts you may not find here the ardent skies of your own sunny south but you will find as ardent hearts as warm and generous hands to welcome you to our commonwealth we welcome you to the city of boston and you have already experienced how open-hearted how generous how free from all possible taint of sectional thought are the hospitality and cordiality of the city of boston we welcome you to finial hall many an eloquent voice has in all times resounded from the walls of finial hall it is said that no voice is uttered by man in this air we breathe but enters into that air it continues there immortal as the portion of the universe into which it is passed if it be so how instinct is finial hall with the voice of the great good and glorious of the past generations and of our own whose voices have echoed through its walls whose eloquent words have thrilled the hearts of hearers as if a pointed sword were passing them through and through here adams aroused his countrymen in the war of independence and webster invoked them almost with the dying breath of his body invoked with that voice of majesty and power which he alone possessed invoked them to a union between the north and south ay sir and who if he were here present who from those blessed abodes on high from which he looks down upon us would congratulate us for this scene first and above all because his large heart would have appreciated the spectacle of a statesman eminent among the most eminent of the southern states here addressing an assembly of the people in the city of boston because in the second place he would have remembered that though divided from you by party relations in one of the critical hours of his fame and his honor your voice was not wanting for his vindication in the congress of the united states sir again i say we welcome you to finial hall and now my fellow-citizens i will withdraw myself and present to you the honorable jefferson davis end of appendix e part one recording by sean stipsky kingman arizona